Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. In the mid-19th century, Lexington would witness a devastating outbreak of the cholera, not once, but twice. The first epidemic would come to the city of about 7,000 inhabitants in the summer of 1833, killing 500 people. The waterborne bacteria would seep into the city's water source, infecting the young and the old. Then again in 1849, an outbreak would affect cities in the state of Kentucky and many other states, and among those killed were former President James K. Polk and hundreds of people seeking gold in the rush of 1849. In tragedy, families are devastated by loss, and yet heroes emerge. We hope to highlight their stories and preserve a piece of Lexington history through this next series of podcasts. You will hear the stories of William King Solomon and Aunt Charlotte and the orphanage that emerged through the philanthropic efforts of Mariah Gratz, as well as the home of the friendless that would eventually become Ashland Terrace. As always, thank you for spending your time with us and listening. Good day, everyone. Thank you for joining us. So today we have Terry Foodie. Terry is a certified clinical research coordinator and holds a master's degree in nursing, in addition to being a registered nurse. She currently owns a speaking and consulting business incorporating information with inspiration for healthy living. Ms. Foodie is the author of numerous articles on health issues and two books. Her second book was discussed previously in a podcast, The Cherokee and the Newsman, Kinsman and Words. And in this podcast, we'll be discussing her first book, The Pie Seller, The Drunk and the Lady, Heroes of the 1833 Cholera Epidemic in Lexington. Thanks for joining us, Ms. Foodie. My pleasure. All right. So let's start off with the book, um, The Pie Seller, The Drunk and the Lady, which covers, obviously, the cholera epidemic um, of 1833 through the experiences of three different people, William King Solomon, Aunt Charlotte, and Mariah Gratz. When and how was the epidemic first discovered to hit the streets of Lexington? Probably in the early 1833 Mm -hmm. or even before then. Yeah. Because cholera hit England by late 1831. Okay. And so when it came to New York City in the fall of 32 and some of the other ports, uh-huh. word was getting around that it was starting to move its way okay. with the waterways because it was in New York City, Philadelphia, New Orleans, mm-hmm. port cities port at that cities, time. Yeah. So there was some some talk in the trustees' minutes, the okay. trustees being what we would now call the city council, okay. but the trustees' notes of cholera's coming, how can we prevent it? They even had a day of prayer. To pray away the cholera. Pray away the cholera. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so the three figures that you researched for the book are from completely different backgrounds, and they lived very different lives, but their paths crossed during this difficult time in Lexington history. So can you tell us a little bit about King Solomon, the hero? King Solomon. I was still rolling around that first question in my yeah. mind, but we'll get back to it when we talk yeah. about the disease itself. I have just been looking at some more things about him. Mm-hmm. William Solomon was born in Virginia. He mm-hmm. claimed to be a friend, a childhood friend of Henry Clay. Mm-hmm. The earliest documents about him being paid by the trustees are in the teens, the okay. 18-teens. And he was paid for? He was paid for doing road work, mm-hmm. contracting work okay. on... I know Mulberry, which is you know Mulberry's limestone, limestone now, area. yes, and Short Street, 
And that hill that goes up next to the Hyatt, that Broadway uh-huh. grade, he graded that. Oh, wow. Yeah, he worked on that mm-hmm. that time. And he had a partner, Robert Beatty, okay. that he worked with for almost a decade. And during the teens, the 18 teens, together, they were paid $3,000 wow. by the city wow. or the town of Lexington. Mm-hmm. So there were good times for him. Mm-hmm. He was already in his 30s at that point. So he wasn't a young man. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So how did he go from, you know, being, a, you know, a working man? Um, it was purported that he came from a, a well-off Virginia family. I'm not sure if that's true or not. But how did he sort of go from this, from riches to rags, so to say? From riches the, to rags. The town drunk. Well, we go by documentation. And the documentation is during that period I was mm-hmm. talking about during the 18 teens. Mm-hmm. He bought property at the corner of Pine and Upper. Mm-hmm. For about $700, something like that, and from a person named Robert Gray. These are all in the county clerk notes. Yeah. And it's in my book. Mm-hmm. I have it all documented. Yeah. But by 1832, he had lost that property. Lost everything? At a big loss. Mm-hmm. A big loss at that time. So he was homeless. 32 was when Lexington became a city. Mm-hmm. Also, between what I would call the heyday of, of the 18 teens mm-hmm. and coming down through the 20s and the 30s, he would have these jobs earlier where they would, uh, okay, we need to have this done, and then they pay him. But what they decided to do is they became more closely, they being the, the trustees slash council, mm-hmm. was at the beginning of the year, they planned out what the jobs were they were going to have yeah. done, and then they would hire people out. Okay. And he was no longer working with Beatty, so I wrote that the drinking had started to escalate. Okay. So you have him getting paid less. Right up to the time he was arrested, they were still paying him yeah. for odd jobs, but not as much. Now, he also had work from different people privately. Mm-hmm. But he was no longer working with Beatty as much, and he was homeless. Mm-hmm. You talked about him being arrested, and then... Yes, there was a vagrancy up, law yeah. that was passed in 1832 when Lexington became mm-hmm. a city. And so they had something to snatch him with or grab him with yeah. because he's on the streets. But they'd already had talk of children being on the streets. And Mm -hmm. when the railroad was built in the 1820s, you had more transient men Mm -hmm. around. And there was was comments about these businessmen being drunk in the evenings. So both of these problems were noted in the trustees' notes. Yeah. And then um, when he was arrested, he was essentially sold to servitude, basically. Yes. To a lady, Aunt Charlotte, Mm -hmm. or she, she... purchased his services on the auction block. Where did he go from there? All right. Yeah, he was auctioned off by the sheriff yeah. as an indentured servant. Yeah. So he's a white man, and Aunt Charlotte was a freed black woman. Yes. And she bought him and took him home with her. Mm-hmm. And I know from researching work that was done on his gravestone that she lived on Water Street, mm-hmm. probably near the corner now of vine and limestone. Okay. At that time, she was right on Water Street, mm-hmm. which does run behind the library, the main library. The central, Downtown, yeah. there's like an alley. Well, yeah. that was Water Street. And if you if you had it going all the way to the east, down towards Triangle Park that way, yeah. you would picture where she lived. Supposedly, Grace Cox, Grace Cox was on Main Street at that time at that corner, and she okay. was in a small building behind him. Right. That's what was written. Okay. So she took him home with her yeah. to feed him and take care of him. But I believe she bought him to work for her. Yeah, to help her with the pie. With the pie would, card. Yeah. Also, she had to have somebody chop wood so she mm-hmm. could bake. Yeah. And all that stuff. yeah. Spencer Cooper uh-huh. 
was a businessman in Lexington. His will, mm-hmm. and the executor of his will, was Benjamin Gratz. Okay. So that's how I had them knowing each other. Benjamin mm-hmm. Gratz was the executor of his will, and he and that had— that was Mariah's um, husband. husband. yeah. Very good. Yeah. Very good. So he had written an emancipation document about her that I found mm-hmm. in the county clerk's office and put in the book. But he said she wasn't going to be totally free for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And the reason I found the document is I was looking through his deeds because what was also written by somebody else was mm-hmm. that she was freed upon his death and he left her with a little property. So I thought, this is how I'm going to find out where she lived. Mm-hmm. Well, au contraire, that's not what I found in his deeds. In his in the county clerk's office, I found the emancipation document. Okay. And he was very much alive when she was freed. In fact, even 10 years later, he was still alive. Because okay. after that, I think it was like 39, 1839, he wrote the will out. Okay. So he freed her in during the summer of 33. And she did have a child. Mm-hmm. In the emancipation document, he thinks she's about 26 years old. This was in 1817. Had a three-year-old son named Harrison. My speculation was after the president. Yeah. But who knows? And that would have made her 42, the year of the cholera. And we know that Solomon was 58 that year. Oh, wow. So what year was that? When That's 33. 33, so it was the same year that the Mm -hmm. cholera epidemic broke out. In the spring. Yeah. So can you talk to us a little bit about what happened during the the breakout? Yeah, during the breakout. Mm -hmm. So it was in Maysville, Mm -hmm. and there's been theories that the people got on the stagecoats and went down that new road, the Mm -hmm. macadamized road between Lexington and Maysville, to run because everybody wanted to get away from what they thought was the bad air, the miasma Mm -hmm. of the cholera. Yeah. Because they assumed it was in the air. They assumed it was in the air. They yeah. also thought it was boggy, low-lying places, mm-hmm. which there's, you know, some thought that. But they didn't realize it was in the water, and that yeah. it was contaminated drinking water from the wells, from the overflowing privies, mm-hmm. which they called necessaries, which took me a while to figure out the handwriting and also <laughs> what they were talking about. Said, oh, I got it, because they were talking about the necessaries. Downtown should be at 100 feet between each building, which uh-huh. makes us have to picture how many outhouses were really downtown at yeah. that time. But so people started getting sick, mm-hmm. and they would get sick and die within 48 hours. Yeah, very so quickly. Very quickly because of the underground cars. Mm-hmm. So when you've got up to 50 de- you know, fifty deaths a day, and this is just going on and on, mm-hmm. they... Uh, were overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. How did they deal with all these deaths? Oh, it how did they deal with it? Incredible the yeah. the amount of death that was you know mm-hmm. hit the city. Uh, you know, especially it was concentrated within the city center. Five hundred deaths. Five hundred. Five hundred yeah. deaths in a matter of um, weeks by the fourth of July. Ha- I mean, would, did they have enough medical attention? No, did they have enough no. To, three of the doctors had died, okay. and these were mostly doctors from Transylvania University. Yes, three of them had died. One of them was away, didn't come back. Another broke his arm, mm-hmm. trying to put his coat on, running down the stairs, answering to a call. Even though a, de- a descendant or mm-hmm. someone told me that, no, he broke his leg and Solomon took him around in his cart to, <laughs> on his rounds. <laughs> to, to go from, from house to house. Yeah, That's took incredible. him around in his rounds. So that could be true, too. I hadn't yeah. seen any, any other places. My husband told me that yeah. story. So how did they deal with it? Well, they did the best they could. Mm-hmm. You have to remember that a number of people left mm-hmm. and went to the Keene Hotel wherever they could go. Now, if you didn't have any money and you didn't have any place to go, mm-hmm. you're going to stay there. And you yeah. have to realize there was at least 2,000 black men mm-hmm. to the 3,000 white men yeah. in the census mm-hmm. from 
1832. So you have five thousand, you know, you had seven thousand people living there, almost seven thousand people living there, five hundred deaths, five hundred and two to be exact, including yeah. the lunatic asylum, Eastern mm-hmm. State. Mm-hmm. And the bodies just piled up at the That's cemetery a lot. gates. Yeah. That's quite a lot. Cemetery was on Short Street at that mm-hmm. time, across from Rupp Arena. It was up in that area. Okay. The new cemetery was not built. The Lexington right. Cemetery. Not yet. Yeah. Not yet. Not yet, yeah. And Solomon had a big part in burying. According to James Lane Allen's yeah. article about yes. this that he wrote, you know, and James Lane Allen was born in what, 15, 49, 47, mm-hmm. sometime around there, the late 40s, 1840s, that the bodies were piled up mm-hmm. in the bedclothes they died in or hat boxes or whatever because they ran out of coffins. Mm-hmm. And Millward's was in operation at that time. He was a the cabinet funeral. maker. Yeah. And I noticed from the trustees' notes that Millward did get paid for building some coffins during that time for mm-hmm. paupers. So it was a functioning business. Mm-hmm. But the, the story goes that Solomon started digging. Mm-hmm. And, of course, London Farrell, who was also a free black man and a minister, he was digging too. Mm-hmm. And just bearing the dead. So you've got this 58-year-old man who's homeless mm-hmm. and considered a drunk by that time, burying hundreds of people. Yeah, that's a very hard and, and long job because he did it all day. All day and all night. Yeah. I think it's one of those things that you get started and you don't know what you're getting into, mm-hmm. but then it just keeps going and you just keep going. And some say that he dug and fell asleep and would drink for a while and all stuff. I don't know where he was still getting booze. I'm sure there was mm-hmm. much that was abandoned. I'm sure, yes. <laughs> or back alleys sure. or open doors to yeah. tippling houses. Yeah. You know. And in the meantime, Aunt Charlotte took care of him. She helped he- Aunt Charlotte, my my theory was that there was all these men who had been working in the mm-hmm. factories, the hemp factories that were left. You know, yeah. Benjamin Gratz had twelve of his servants or slaves in the hemp factory died mm-hmm. in the epidemic, and then seven in the household. So they must have had many. Mm-hmm. And so there's these people that were, I imagine were left behind, and I wrote that she was able to get some you know, pig parts and mm-hmm. things like that, and that she tried to feed these people. Yeah. Now, it was also written that farmers would come in and bring things and leave them in the market. But you could just imagine these farmers bringing things in and throwing them in the market stalls yeah, and, and then running, running out, out, right? <laughs> just running, just running out. Yeah. But I think she would have known people that she could have made connections I'm with. sure, yeah. Also, the pigs were running loose mm-hmm. along with the dogs and everything else. So. Yeah. Chickens, I imagine, were loose, too. Yeah. And along with the deaths, of course, we end up with several orphans. And in comes Mariah Gratz. Exactly. Um, who yeah. had been going through some, some hardships in her in her personal life, losing her mother and, and several children. Mariah gave birth to six sons mm-hmm. that we know of, that she had these six pregnancies. Her oldest son, who was like Benjamin Gratz mm-hmm. Jr., died when he was nine. Yeah. So that was a great loss for mm-hmm. him. And then in the towards the end of 1831, she had her last baby, and mm-hmm. he lived four days. And, yeah. So so then when the town became mm-hmm. a city in 32, Benjamin was inv- on the council at that time, and in February he was involved with this big gala they had. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a scene where he's wanting her to get involved in this. Yeah, to and kind she, of get her mind away from Yes, and she's still recovering yeah. from the whole thing and, and brought Henry Howard, her uh-huh. third son, into this mix mm-hmm. as that person. So when, But her mother was living with them because she was widowed from Maria's father before Maria, Mariah was even born. Yeah. And then she was married to, to Scott, who was the governor for four years. Yeah. 
but he had died, General Scott. Mm-hmm. So she, they still had the property out in Winchester. They still had Caneward mm-hmm. in Clark County, which was Nathaniel Gist's. Uh, he got that from his involvement in the French and Indian War, but that's in my second book. Yeah. But she was staying with them, and she did die in their household. Mm-hmm. So I I thought that Mariah was probably pretty, and her brother also died too. Mm-hmm. You know this thing, but what happened was mm-hmm. Benjamin's sister mm-hmm. Rebecca Grant. She was a Jewish woman and mm-hmm. was very much into feminism, as you would say, but mm-hmm. also for good deeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was known for her philanthropy. For her yeah. philanthropy, yeah. right? Yeah. And she was corresponding with Mariah once she accepted the marriage, which yeah. she didn't accept it at first. She mm. was very much against this. You oh, will wow. soon tire of this rustic maid from the woods, <laughs> she wrote. But then she embraced her yeah. and wrote to her quite a, quite a bit. So Mariah decided that the only way this was going to happen mm-hmm. was to reach across the aisle. Now, one of the things that we have to remember about mm-hmm. this is you've got you've got things that are so expansive. You've got mm-hmm. this black woman buying this white man in 1833 Kentucky Mm -hmm. and feeding him and taking care of him. Then he's burying the dead, Mm -hmm. never got paid for it. Yeah. He just just did it. And he's this homeless person. But Mariah had a dual religious household. She was Episcopalian. Mm -hmm. She was buried in the Episcopal Cemetery when she died. Mm -hmm. When Benjamin Gratz died many years later, he had a rabbi from Cincinnati do the service. Mm -hmm. So here, she knew that this was possible to have a, a observant household of two different religions, and she also believed at that time, when there was so much disaster uh-huh. from the epidemic, that the only way to get this orphanage to happen was to reach across the aisle. So mm-hmm. she invited women from all these different denominations, which is the first time this yeah. had ever happened. Yeah. This altruistic interdenominational movement. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. And a lot can get done when you, when you can. Get these church women together. Exactly. <laughs> a lot can be done. And, and you know, put aside your differences. Yes. But, yeah, so she started the orphan asylum. They got it going. They yeah. formed an organization, mm-hmm. you know, the Lexington Orphan Society. Mm-hmm. They raised a lot of money, like $3,000. Mm-hmm. They had quite a bit of it was in kind. And I have a list of all the pledges that people made and what they said they would do. Then they bought this house, mm-hmm. Dr. Fishback's house. It's three stories on mm-hmm. Third Street, yeah. which is now the entrance to Hampton Court. The house isn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. They also went to Frankfurt and got tax exempt. Yeah. And the property went all the way back to Fourth Street and bar. They had a cow, mm-hmm. the milk for the children, dairy cow, and they hired a teacher. So at a time when there was no free education, mm-hmm. they had free education for them, and they tried to teach them a trade. Mm-hmm. And I was told, but I could never find this. I kept looking, looking for it. But I was told that there was a letter from the oldest girl, the white girl mm-hmm. from that family, thanking Mariah for getting them off the street. Getting streets. them off the street and yeah. taking care of them after their lives. losing their parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, We actually get a lot of customers that, um, a couple of customers that have, were able to trace their ancestors back to the orphan asylum. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't so, know that. Um, yeah, I had a, a couple of customers come ask for records or and such. But cholera was very devastating to Lexington. Um, we know more about it today than we used to. Can you talk to us a little bit about the methods that were used back then to treat cholera compared to how we treat it today? Oh yes, I I didn't know in the beginning that I was going to write about these three people, mm-hmm. so I just. Ex- 
explored cholera and researched it throughout the world. I was like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, because With your was, health background, I'm yeah, sure that was it was this like, big kind of curse. Grunge, yeah. There was these these waves of it in the 1800s mm-hmm. where it would go from you know throughout Europe, and mm-hmm. then once it it hit this the U.S. So in the beginning, the usual stuff that was going on back then, mm-hmm. you know, you get a you get a hot plaster on your abdomen yeah. or this and that, but mostly they used calomel. Because the idea was, the writing was, this is a poison that's on the stomach, mm-hmm. and we have to get it off. Mm-hmm. So we have to get this out first. So the problem is you've got these people that are uh, exuding all this fluid mm-hmm. from their intestinal tract, you know, mostly from the bowels, and they're getting dehydrated. Yeah. So you, now you're going to give them an epicto. You're going to give them something to make them vomit. Yeah. Which, which makes it worse. <laughs> So they, they give them calomel, uh-huh. and if the pulse still hadn't responded, then we up the dose. Oh, you know, no. kind of so, so essentially you're killing them even more. <laughs> making it worse. But uh, the doctor that I wrote about, he did have a whole, he had like this phase one, two, three, four, and the, the four was total collapse. Yeah. Know. But they did try, and some people did respond and would get better, and then sometimes they'd go ahead and die afterwards. Mm-hmm. But... There was one writing of a medical student said, we went in, see the patient. I thought we were going to do a vivisection, Mm -hmm. looking at the patient. And they sat up, and I just totally, this is a Halloween. They just totally freaked out. (laughs) A complete person was still alive because they looked so. They thought they had passed away, but they didn't. They looked so bad. Now, some people were, you were asked about how did we get to how we treat it now when we're replacing the fluids. Like Mm -hmm. O'Shaughnessy, this Irish man over in Europe, he was theorizing that we should replace the fluid. So he actually tried this. He mm-hmm. actually tried an IV thing in a venous. But you have to be careful. If you don't have the right amount of electrolytes, you can, what we would say, blow out the lungs. You get mm-hmm. them too much. So some of his people responded and, and some didn't. And then, of course, Snow, you know, John Snow with mm-hmm. the Broad Street Pump in 1854, which is like 20 years later, he really theorized it was in the water mm-hmm. and and did a map of where all the deaths were from. Mm-hmm. But the city and other people pushed back against him, and part of it was because, you know, the pipes needed to be repaired. Repaired, <laughs> yeah. And then it, the and it the brought, yeah, brought the solution back to their door. Brought uh, the solution back to their door, because, which is yeah, they have to do something pretty about much it. where we are Sanitation. now. <laughs> yeah. There were a couple of brothers from Johns Hopkins, mm-hmm. the Sack Brothers, S-A-C-K, and I actually met one of them oh, at really? the Chautauqua Institute. Yeah, to mm-hmm. sit next to him at a turkey dinner, and he tells me who he is, and he worked on the collar, and I'm like, oh, this is, this is karma. But he did. He worked on it in the hospital mm-hmm. in India, and he and his brother worked there for years in the 60s and stuff, and they finally got the right formula, and it has been reduced now to a bag of, like, dried electrolytes that mm-hmm. you can reconstitute mm-hmm. if you have the right water. If you've got clean water, they're working on a vaccine that I think they have hope for. A vaccine they, for cholera. Mm-hmm. You get a herd yeah. of So things yeah. are more important, but don't be fooled in thinking that because we have running water and yeah. toilets that cholera is gone at least 100,000 people a year die from cholera in the world yeah um, especially in in you know war ravaged countries or war ravaged countries places uh, where there are refugees mm-hmm. or where people do not have the facilities yeah then they get cholera for uh, facilities for clean sanitation obviously mm-hmm. 
But um, yeah, it is a devastating illness, and it was a big piece of Lexington history that spurred some great organizations like the the Orphan Asylum, among other things. But thank you for talking with us today, Ms. Foodie. We look forward to hearing more from you. I know that you're working, still working on some research, so we look forward to, to seeing more from Can you. you. Thank you. It. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm, or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at lexpublib.org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.